Don, I'm a compulsive overeater. First of all, thank you, Nick, for asking me to share this morning. Um, I didn't think this was possible. I believed genuinely somewhere deep in my heart that I was going to be out of control and overweight my entire life because I had nothing in my experience that could tell me otherwise. Uh, oh, by the way, I brought pictures. Um, I had nothing in my life that told me otherwise. As far back as I can remember, I had a different relationship with food than any of my friends. I was really heavy as a kid, much more proportionately than I ever was as an adult. I was the kind of kid that people would turn around on the street and look at. I was self-conscious of my weight. I was teased by the kids at school continually about it. And I couldn't do anything about it. I, other kids would come over and, you know, have a lunch, and they'd leave half the food on their plate, and I couldn't understand it. I'd be staring at it. Uh, they would say things like, I'm full, or I can't eat anymore, <laughs> things that I could not understand. And I really had no idea that it could ever be any different. I wanted it. I had this fantasy as a child that I remember of uh, this gigantic buffet, and everything you took a bite of was delicious, and you lost a pound. <laughs> that, ultimately, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to eat like I was eating and yet weigh something different. Uh, and I like to say, because I grew up in the 50s and my mom had a local TV show, we had one of the first televisions in our neighborhood, that I was a pioneer of eating in front of the television. <laughs> and as you know, pioneers have to endure hardships. There were no remote controls in those days. <laughs> and only three stations. Um, I, I, um, it, it, I, I kind of continued along this pattern. I would occasionally lose a little bit of weight, uh, but I would only gain back more. Uh, I really didn't understand it. I didn't lose any serious weight until I got to college, and a friendly doctor gave me what today you would call speed, but back then it was, I think, tenuate dose pan, uh, it was, or, or Dexamil, or I think I had both. Uh, they're essentially speed. They work great in terms of suppressing your appetite. They made me fly around the room, but I had no appetite. But the interesting thing was is that I had no appetite, and yet I was still thinking about food all the time. I, I didn't until years later put that together, that that might be stupid. Um, but I, it was like, you know, I, I wasn't hungry, but I think, well, I'm going to have something a little later. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. I mean, I was just, my head was spinning about the food, and yet it wasn't about physical hunger. Because for me, it's not about physical hunger. It's about an obsession. And uh, anyway, I lost some weight for as long as I stayed on the speed. Um, and then when I went off it, I gained it back with, with more. That's sort of my experience. It's like borrowing money. You, you know, you may borrow $100, but you're going to pay back interest 110 right? So every time I'd lose weight, I'd maybe lose 30 pounds, and I'd gain back 35. Uh, and this just kept escalating, and I kept going. When I was in graduate school, I finally thought I got it this time. I did it different. I was eating three meals a day. I was not depriving myself. I was exercising, and I lost a lot of weight. And I thought I got it this time, because all my life it felt to me like there's a gimmick, there's a trick, there's a, something I haven't thought of. Star Trek used to start out space, the final frontier. I used to think, wait, the final frontier. <laughs> because all the other areas of my life, I'm really pretty good at if I want something, I go, okay, I'm here, goal's there, what are the steps between, how do I get there? And I've been pretty good at doing it for things that I really cared about. I have, on the other hand, continually had my ass kicked by the weight. 
and sit there like a cartoon character with birds circling around his head going, what the hell happened? Because um, I just couldn't get it. And I think, I, I don't understand. I can do it in other areas. I can't do it here. I don't understand. There's some gimmick. There's some something out there that I haven't figured out yet that'll turn the corner. And then I would have these like tauntingly frustrating periods where I would think I got it this time and I'm doing it right and I'm not deprived and I'm eating right and I'm exercising and I'm eating healthy and I would lose the weight and the last go round and uh, I lost the weight and I had it off for about four years and I was exercising and I looked great and I felt good and interestingly enough I had gotten my weight down at one point to like 30 or 40 pounds under what I am now and I still didn't like the way I looked. I didn't like the way my bones were shaped and my hips are bigger than my waist and that's weird and, and I, I, it tells me that up here I am never going to be happy with the way I look. I, my body image is so distorted from when I was a kid and from when I was so ashamed of it, I'm never going to feel good about it. Uh, I mean, I understand that now. I didn't at the time, but I do now. And that's okay. I, let, I had to let go of it. If anything, it was sort of an impetus to relax, let go. It's not going to matter what your head says. Your head's going to never say you're right. You have to let go of that and understand that you're where you're supposed to be. Um, so I heard about Overeaters Anonymous at least 10 years before I ever came in the rooms. And the reason I didn't get in the room is because my ego was bigger than the door. My ego was where I was a few minutes ago talking about, saying, you ought to be able to do this. How come you can't do this? You know, what's the matter with you? You just haven't figured out the gimmick, the trick, the, the strategy, the whatever. And as soon as you do, you can do it. So I came in here initially being honest with the attitude of how, how fast can I learn it and how quick can I get out of here? Because that's sort of my pattern. I'm a graduator. I want to learn how to do something. I want to do it. And then I want to move on and find another challenge. So I came in here going, how do I do that here? And I had noticed, because I'd been to a nutritionist a couple of times, that for a few days after going to the nutritionist, my food was pretty good. And it felt sloppy. I said, okay, if Odor Readers Anonymous is nothing more than a place where I can go and get a few days of relief at a time, I didn't call it relief at that point, I just thought ability to, to control my food, uh, I'll take it. Um, because I was desperate. I had the very vivid memory of laying there, feeling the stomach, and going, I give up. I don't know what to do. And I didn't know what to do. And I, I just called uh, information. This was pre-internet. I have about uh, 15 and a half years of abstinence, so this was pre-internet. So I listened to this half-hour listing of all of the meetings in Los Angeles and picked a newcomer meeting and went in. And it was not a great experience. It was a dark, rainy day. It was in a dark room. I was certain that some of the people there were brain damaged. <laughs> I could not wait to get out of there. I was so gone uh, because it was just creepy. Um, but this tiny little woman named Doris that a lot of you know gets between me and the door, points her finger in my face and says, do not leave before the miracle happens. I thought, what? <laughs> I had no idea what she was talking about, but she looked such a force of nature. And, uh, and she was in her 90s then. Yeah. And uh, she gave me a card and said, I printed a thousand of these. I'm going to give them away before I die. <laughs> and, uh, and the next day I went to Serenity Sunday, completely different. Bright, sunny, people laughing. I thought... And I saw things I'd never seen before that I didn't think were possible, like people who'd lost 300 pounds and had it off for 25 years. Uh, it was extraordinary. I didn't think that was possible. I actually, somewhere in my heart, as I started out saying, didn't think I could do this. I didn't believe it. And yet, it's sort of like a bicycle. You, you, you know, it's two wheels. You get on it and you fall over, right? But you see kids in the neighborhood riding the bike, and you think, well, I guess somebody can do it. 
if they can do it, I should be able to do it. Um, and so I thought, I don't know what it is, and I don't know what here, but I, there's something, and nothing else has worked, so I've got to try it. Um, so I just started coming to meetings, and about the third meeting, uh, my, uh, uh, Michael walked up to me and said, if you'd like to, you can call me. That's how I scientifically picked my sponsor, because <laughs> he's the only one who came up to me. And uh, we've been together the whole time since. But, and I just called him again without any idea of what I was doing or why I was doing it. I just knew that there felt like there was something here, and I couldn't tell you what it was. And my brain works very logically. My brain is, you know, how do I analyze the situation? How do I break it down? How do I get from here to there? This program is not logical. This program is experiential. And that was a big change for me and something that I was not so used to or comfortable with because I like to, I like to take things apart and put them back together and, you know, get into every little piece of it. And that actually gets in the way of the program for me. Uh, what, what works for me is just shutting up and doing it and seeing that it works and understanding and trusting that it's going to work. There was a, I went to, uh, my, my sponsor is also in Pacific Group, which is this highly powerful 900 person meeting. Took me one of the meetings, uh, and uh, even though I'm not alcoholic, I just wanted to see the experience. And this old timer behind me goes, kid, this is a million dollar program, you get it a nickel at a time. And that's been my experience. It's, it's the, the longer I'm in it, the more depth there is and the more there is to it. It's, it's sort of infinitely deep because it continues to be experiential. And my head continues to want to take me out of it. My head continues to tell me there's another way, and you don't need this, and look how much weight you've lost, and you don't have to worry about it. And that, of course, leads me to getting sloppy and leads me to, uh, to, to having problems with it, which I still do. I, I, again, I don't want this to sound like some pink cloud straight line. I did end up getting blessed in the sense that I, I got absent immediately, and I lost the weight relatively quickly, within six months. Um, but that, again, lasted about a year and a half before I started getting heavier, and my ego immediately said, uh, don't tell anybody you're the poster boy for OA. You should be the shining example. Nobody should know that you're having problems. And, of course, fortunately, I realized that was exactly the opposite of what I needed to do. I needed to tell everybody I was having problems, and I could just feel the release of the tension from doing that. Um, the thing about the program to me that, that I like to talk about is one of the most fascinating parts is when I went up to get a chip for it was either 60 or 90 days, I'm not sure which, and I realized as I was walking up there that there was something different that I'd never felt before, and it's sort of like you notice when something intrudes in your life, you don't necessarily notice when something leaves, and what I realized is that there was something missing that I, from the weight loss from my prior experiences, and what that was was that every time I lost weight in the past, it felt like a spring winding up inside me. It felt like a tension getting tighter and tighter, which would then explode in this orgy of food when I finally got off the diet, and I finally got out of prison, so to speak. And as I went up to take this chip, I realized I didn't have the wind-up. I didn't have the spring. First time in my life I had ever lost weight and not felt the tension, not felt the white knuckle hang on, not felt the, I am so deprived that I have just got to go out and gorge myself to make up for it. Because that's my pattern. But I didn't feel it this time. And I realized there's something really extraordinary going on. There's something very different from this experience than anything else I'd ever felt around food in my life. And it's, um, it's something that I can only get in these rooms. There's an analogy I like to use is take somebody who's blind from birth and tell them what the color orange looks like. Can't do it. We don't have a common vocabulary. 
I can't take someone who's not a compulsive overeater and expect them to understand how I feel about food. They don't know. They don't have the same vocabulary. I'm not a compulsive gambler. I don't understand why people would lose their house gambling. I, I don't understand why alcoholics, you know, do what they do, because it doesn't appeal to me. But put me in front of food and I got it. And that's, the, that's what I find in the rooms, is that we can talk to each other in a way that nobody else can. We can support each other in a way that nobody else can, because we all understand it. We all have the same problem. We all have the same issues. And uh, it, it, for me, it's a matter of doing the deal. If I do the deal on a daily basis, I get a daily reprieve. If I don't do the deal, I start to feel the tension, I start to feel sloppy, the food gets a little bigger, it calls to me, it's a you, it starts with a you've been good, why not, and those kinds of things. The voices are still in my head. The difference is, I don't have to act on them today. The difference is, I have a couple of seconds between the impulse and the action that I never had before. Previously, if I had an idea about grabbing something that looked good in front of me, uh, if fill in the blank, it's, it's free, it's available on board, I'm this, I'm that, I'm uncomfortable. Uh, I would think to myself, this is probably not a good idea as, it was, as I was chewing it. Now, at least I can think this is probably not a good idea, and I have a couple of seconds before I put it in my mouth. Now, am I perfect? No. Sometimes I give in to that. Uh, that happens. But at least I'm aware of it, and at least I can call my sponsor, I can get clean about it. Because to me, keeping the secrets is, is devastating. Uh, it's sort of like the little monsters in an attic. If they're hiding behind things in the dark and jump out at me, they scare me. If I pull them out in the light, they're relatively small and, and you know, not as scary. So if I talk about what's bothering me, if I talk about what's on my mind, uh, I can get a release from it. I can feel it physically. I can feel it's like an exhale. It's like, uh, okay, I don't have to be ashamed of it. I don't have to try to hold on and act like I'm in control of it. Because I can't control the food. I really have tried, and I can't do it. It kicks my ass every single time. I can, I can do things in business. I've had success in my personal life. and been married for uh, 41 years. Um, I, I mean, things, uh, but I can't sit in front of a bowl of tortilla chips and not get my ass kicked. Um, it, 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 it's humiliating, and yet it's reassuring at the same time that at least I understand it, and at least I know I have a disease. I have something that makes me different from... Uh, the normies out there, and I, I have to take the steps on a daily basis to deal with it. But if I do the deal on a daily basis, I get a daily reprieve. I have a, had a sponsee once with a gift for analogy. He used to say, I can't stay clean today on yesterday's shower. And I love that. I love it because it doesn't matter how many years of absence I have. In fact, the more years I get, the cockier I get and the more complacent I get, and I start thinking that I, I'm, I'm special and I really know what I'm doing and this should be easier for me. Uh, if I remember that the, the next 24 hours is all that matters, then I, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much time I have. It only matters what I do for the next 24 hours. It doesn't matter how much time anybody here has. Everybody now has got at least 15 minutes of absence. Um, you know, build on it. I mean, it, it's just what we do from here forward. I remember my sponsor saying in the beginning um, that he didn't eat pizza. I said, you can go the rest of your life without eating pizza? He said, oh, I don't know, but I can do it for 24 hours. And that really resonated with me because I was always projecting out forever and going, oh, my God, and then I get overwhelmed. Um, but if I think of it just as what I need to do, and by the way, sometimes it's the next three minutes for me if I'm really in a place where I'm getting screamed at by the food. 
Learn another great thing once in program. That if the food's calling you, it's because you're throwing your voice. <laughs> and I am good at that. <laughs> you cannot see my lips move. <laughs> um, so uh, all I can say is it's a fairly simple thing for me. It works. If I do it, it works. Uh, my head still doesn't believe it. My head still wants to take me out. My head still tells me that there's another way and I don't have to do everything and, you know, you can coast a little bit. But that doesn't work for me. Um, it just gets me sloppy. And, and, and fortunately, if I stay in touch with another human being and with the program and sponsees and my sponsor, uh, I, don't get, I don't drift off because it forces me back to, to think about it. But certainly my head doesn't go to a great place on that. Um, I, uh, the, the working the steps was, was a really profound experience, uh, and I, I remember talking to my sponsor early on saying, I'm really afraid of the ninth step and making apologies to all these people. He says, no, you're not even on the first step. <laughs> and I said, well, so I shouldn't worry about it? He said, well, you can if you want to. <laughs> but I, I figured what he meant by that was, you know, figure out when you get there, worry about the ninth step, which is kind of what happened. And Sure enough, by the time I got there, uh, it wasn't as scary, and it, it was, you know, it still was profound, and it was a little scary, but it wasn't, I was in a better place with understanding how it fit into the program, and there's a reason the steps are in the order that they're in. Um, I, I think possibly one of the most profound things I ever did was the program forces me to look at my role in something, and that, you know, previously, it was all about me, and I was the victim, and I was wronged by life. And, you know, I'm the one stuck with this disease, and whatever, something went wrong. It was somebody doing it to me and not my fault. And it, it, Working through the steps, I come to understand there's almost no situation in which I don't have a role of some kind. Uh, even if the role is as simple as I'm carrying a grudge from 30 years ago, um, because I'm still carrying it, and they've probably forgotten about it. Uh, but usually it's much more active than that, and it's usually more along the lines of, if I put myself in their position, would I have done what they did? And the answer is most of the times, yeah. Not always, but usually. And it's hard for me to get angry at somebody who's doing what I would do. Uh, I may mean, still do it, but um, it's, it's much harder. And that, to me, is one of the most essential parts of the program, was I came in here very selfishly. How much can I get out of here? How little can I put into it? And how quick can I leave? I mean, I was, it was all about me. It's, it's, it's not unrelated to my feeling of I should have all the food in the world, and I should have it in front of me. There's a thing in Chuck C.'s book about a new pair of glasses where he talks about looking at the ocean, and if it was all alcohol, it wouldn't be enough. And I thought, you know, if it was all food, I'd still worry that I wouldn't have enough to last me. And because it's not about reality for me. It's about how much can I take and how much, you know, is too much. It, it's... Uh, um, you know, the reason I don't always throw things away is that I, I might need it. Um, it. It's sort of a hoarder, I don't have enough, uh, you know, insecurity that for me comes out in food. And if I can get past that, if I can understand where it's coming from, if I can look at life from a standpoint of not just what's it about for me, but what's it about for other people, and what can I do to be of help to other people, um, I get out of my head and I get a release from the compulsion that I don't get any other way. There's a thing in the big book where um, Bill talks about having a problem removed root and branch. And that struck me because 
always before when I'm dieting, I'm flipping the hedge and I'm talking about the branches, but I never really looked at taking out the roots of the plants. And th that's what I get from the program. I truly get, if I'm doing it right, I truly get a release from the convulsion. And it's, it, it, there's a very simple thing that I do that's very, very powerful for me. And that is, is that when I'm feeling it, if I say, God, please relieve me of the compulsion, I can feel it leave. Uh, interestingly, there's times when I don't want to do it. I just want to go ahead and eat. But, uh, and sometimes I do. I mean, I'm being honest. I, I'm not perfect with this. But when I do that, when I say, please relieve me of the compulsion, I can feel it go. I can feel it lift. And if I know my head is going into obsessing about the food, I know something else is going on. And if I can redirect the obsession into what's in front of me, talking to someone I'm with, uh, usually it's, you know, why are you between me and the food? Um, uh, particularly at a social gathering, if I'm uncomfortable, uh, I can be standing there talking to someone and my mind is over on the, the, the tray of whatever. Um, if I can get, if I can shift it, if I can talk about the people, if I can try to concentrate on what's in front of me, the food becomes secondary. And like I say, I don't always want it to do that, but if I, if I do that, if I take care of it, if I do a few simple things, I can get a release from the compulsion. And I don't get it any other way. I don't get it anywhere else. I've never had it anywhere else in my life. It's, it's simple in the sense that the program, you can follow it relatively simply. To the extent I want to overanalyze it, it makes it more complicated. It actually makes it harder for me. Uh, and, and that's a tendency of mine. I can, I can start to um, talk in you know, logical, rational, ra wraparound ways that can keep me from ever feeling but sound like I'm sharing my soul with you. It's, it's a talent I have for talking. I can, I can sound like I'm being really deep but never give anything away and build a wall that keeps you out at the same time. Uh, if I can stop doing that, if I can let go of the intellect and trust the force, so to speak, to use a Star Wars analogy, and know that this will work if I give it the opportunity and leave myself open to it, I get a release. I get a profound, uh, different feeling about the food, and it allows me to go through the program one day at a time. So um, thank you for uh, letting me share. Hi, Christina. I think so. The question is, how do I know the difference between a challenge that is just going to, so I can uh, not deal with something I don't want to, to go find another challenge to distract me versus a challenge that is something legitimate in my life that's an opportunity for growth? Is that right? Well, that's not just an opportunity for growth, but that's more like, hey, I'm excited about new opportunities. Maybe you're like, I really want to do this and help you with the real thing versus a compulsion to just distract me. Ah, okay. Um, so the, the question is, uh, how do I know if a new challenge is something that I, is genuine and that I really want to pursue as opposed to something that's just a distraction so I don't have to deal with something else that I'm dealing with? Um, it, it, it's not always easy, but I think in my heart I know. I mean, I think I know that if I'm avoiding dealing with something, I kind of know it. 
I just don't like to admit it. And I'll look for a distraction not to do it. Uh, I mean, I, I am sort of a serial obsessive, so I'm always obsessing about something. Uh, and hobbies tends to be one of the things that I obsess about as well. So I've been through several of them since I've been in program. And I continue to obsess them, but I don't let them distract me from program. I mean, I think that, to me, the, the key is that I have to make my program a priority and I have to do it on a daily basis. And as long as I'm truly engaged, as long as I'm sponsoring people, calling my sponsor, you know, doing uh, readings and meditations and, and so forth, um, I'm okay because I know I'm connected enough to the program even if my mind wants to get out. Look, some days I'm more into it than others, just like anything else in life. Uh, but as long as I don't let myself drift, uh, I'm okay taking on new challenges. I just need to make sure that I don't let go of the other one even if I'm taking on something new. Yes, John. Uh, the question is, um, how do I not so much worry about just being right as as allowing you know my higher power or to uh, to to be in control? Um, I think it's related to what I talked about earlier, which is that I look for my role in something. And I, I, since I've been in program and really looked at myself, there are, I can't think of one situation where something bad happened to me that I didn't have a role in it. And uh, I know some people find that disconcerting. I find it comforting. I find it comforting in the sense that I'm no longer a victim, that I understand how they got there. And to me, I can't get as angry. I still get upset, obviously, if something doesn't go my way. Um, but I can understand how they got there. I can understand their motives. And I understand um, uh, my mom, who was very spiritual, uh, used to say to me when I was a little kid, God doesn't let you make a mistake. And if you're trying too hard to do something, it's not right for you. And uh, Sean, who was, I haven't seen him in a bit, I hope still around, had a great thing about God only gives you three answers. Yes, yes, but not now. Or no, I have something better for you. If I keep those things in mind, I can be pretty serene about the fact that things aren't going my way. Yes. Do you have any daily or frequent routine of prayer meditation? Uh, I do. I don't meditate much um, because I just don't like it. Um, I, I, I do read for today in the morning. When I first thing when I get up, I put my glasses on it so I can't get too far without seeing it. Um, and, and I call someone on a daily basis and we read a, a couple of pages of big book. Uh, and then I, other than that, I write a daily inventory uh, and call it to my sponsor. And I um, call my sponsor. I talk to sponsees. That's pretty much my daily routine. Thanks. Um, how do you deal with other people who are still in their especially loved ones? Oh, good question. How do I deal with other people still in the disease, especially loved ones? It's tough. Um, you know, I, I, it hurts me to see someone I love uh, hurting themselves. Um, and it's probably more of an Al-Anon question that I'm not qualified to answer. Personally, I can only deal with it by understanding that I am powerless over it, that I can, you know, at the right moment try to make a suggestion, but remembering how I was in the disease, um, I wasn't open to suggestion. It was hurtful, and it would shut me down. So I have to be very cautious with it. Um, but I try to be loving and supporting and not, not feed uh, their disease. 
but at the same time, not judgmental. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. It's hard to watch somebody I care about uh, do something for themselves. Yes. Thank you very much, Don. After you did step six and seven and um, turned over your character defects, do you find that any of them still uh, linger around? And if so, how do you deal with that or how do you work your way through them? Okay, your question is, do I still have lingering character defects after six and seven? And if so, how do I deal with them? No, I have no more defects. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course they linger around. Um, I deal with them by trying to acknowledge them and be honest with them and talk to my sponsor about them and look for the pattern of where they come up. I mean, my initial tendency is to sweep them under the rug and pretend I'm perfect. Uh, but obviously I have character defects and I try to deal with them, you know, just by being honest and talking about them and, you know, trying to raise things to consciousness because my character defects tend to be unconscious. They tend to just slide into something. And by making it conscious and realize that's what I'm doing, I try to go, oh, okay, let me see if I can do it different this time. Yes? Thanks, Don. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you built your relationship with your higher power? Sure. Uh, how did I build my relationship with my higher power? Well, I grew up very spiritual because my mom is very spiritual. We weren't particularly religious, but she was always very spiritual, talked about God very openly and God working in my life very openly. Um, so that was not a foreign concept to me. I had drifted away from it. Uh, and when I got back to OA, I'd forgotten there was a spiritual element to the program, and I thought, oh, that's great. It was like a homecoming for me. I was happy to have that part of myself woken up again um, because I had drifted away from it and hadn't thought about it for a long time. So that part came easy to me. Um, my concept of a higher power, which I kind of always had but articulated when I got the program, to me it's like, um, it's like a wave, whether you call that an ocean wave or a sound wave or a flow or harmony to the universe. It's, uh, I mean, it's one of the reasons, totally my personal opinion, that music resonates in our souls, is I think there's a rhythm to the universe. And when I flow with this rhythm, uh, my life gets great. When I swim upstream against it and try to fight it, my life is really difficult. And so my concept of a higher power is how do I relax and, and flow with the energy and with what's going on in life as opposed to fighting. Yes? Okay, what's my abstinence and how has it changed? My abstinence is, my bottom line abstinence is three meals a day and occasional snack. My food plan, uh, which has changed over time, uh, when, I was, when I first got abstinent and was losing weight, I was cutting out the obvious desserts and pastas and breads and, you know, obvious sorts of heavier foods. But I do eat all foods in moderation. 98.63% uh, of the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I make healthy choices uh, about 97% of the time. Um, but I do eat things in moderation. And my abstinence is to try, uh, again, it's to just eat moderate healthy choices and to be clean about what I'm eating so that I'm not sneak eating it because that sweeping it under the rug is very dangerous for me. Yes? Um, question is, have I gone in all areas of my life from uh, goal-oriented to faith-based? Uh, faith-based may be, 
the answer is yes, it carries over, but I'm still goal-oriented in other areas of my life. And I'm, I'm still, you know, looking for challenges and looking for things I can do. Because I like it. I mean, that's just how I work. But the element is that by adding an element of faith to it or an element of uh, experiential to it is that I'm much more serene about the outcome. I mean, in other words, if I'm not getting something that I've set my mind to, I don't get as upset and frustrated as I used to because I see it as part of the process. Okay, I'm not supposed to have this now. That'll mean so. And by the way, in virtually every area of my life, when I have been incredibly disappointed about something I didn't get, at some point later, I found out why that had to happen and something much better came because of it. Every single time in my life. I can't think of one exception to it. And uh, so it's, it, it's, it's not easy to – that doesn't help so much in the short term when I'm really upset or disappointed. Um, but it does help a bit. And it certainly helps in the long term. I go, oh, like sometimes four or five years later, oh, I see. If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have this. And it tends to work very well for me, and it keeps me in a positive framework about it. Yes, Jeff. Uh, hi, thanks, Don. Uh, two more questions. When food inevitably does call on occasion, uh, A, do you see a pattern that develops to get you there? And B, what specific steps do you take to calm your inner control? So the question is, uh, uh, what, is there a pattern to when the food calls to me, and what do I do to calm the inner ventriloquist? Um, the pattern to when it calls to me uh, tends to be around discomfort. It tends to be around going to a social situation where I'm feeling uncomfortable or anxious, or going, and it tends to be uh, around. Um, Occasionally, it's on a cele celebratory type. I, I don't tend to eat when I'm depressed. I, I tend to eat when I'm happy. I'm um, the opposite of what I understand a lot of people are. Um, so I, that can trigger it, too, if there's a group of people and I'm looking to do some joy out of it. And how do I get out of it? Well, uh, I try to recognize what it is. That's not always easy when I'm in the middle of it because a lot of times I'll find myself eating compulsively and not, you know, before I realize what I'm doing. Uh, the main thing is to just kind of call it out. If I know I'm going into a situation where it's going to get triggered, and I do sometimes, uh, like if I'm going to an event where I don't know a lot of people and they're going to have a lot of food, I'll try and come up with a strategy ahead of time. Uh, and it, it could be just avoiding certain parts of it. It could be, you know, um, I mean, at times I've just stayed away from the food. I've gone directly over to, uh, you know, a place where there isn't any or just had a bottle of water. Because I, when I first got abstinent, one of the things that I did was I, I, I was a night eater. I would come in, start eating at dinner, and not stop till I went to sleep. It was my drug at night. It was smooth, cool me down. I never thought I could stop eating after dinner. And what I did in the beginning was I took a bottle of sports, a sports bottle, filled it with water, and sat there and sucked it like an infant with a pacifier. Uh, it worked for me to have something oral to do. I don't, have, I don't do it now, um, but I did. It was very helpful in the beginning. So as long as, if I'm going to a difficult situation, I try to go in with a strategy that I'll either talk to my sponsor about or, or come up with on my own. Uh, try to to do it. And committing to my sponsor is a good way to do it. I don't always do that anymore. I did more in the beginning. Call in advance saying this is where I'm going, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to do it. Um, that I found that to be helpful too. Other questions? Yes. Hey John, thanks so much. Have you found that the time that you're putting towards steps and tools and meeting with your being a husband and being an employee and wanting to sleep the <laughs> question is, how do I balance the, uh, uh, this, this, this program work with the rest of my life? Um, you know, if I do, the program doesn't take me more than 30 minutes a day. 
uh, and that spread around a bit um, between writing, calling my sponsor, talking to sponsees. Uh, that's not a lot to expend, and uh, if I make it a priority, I just sort of do it. Um, I can do it in between other things. I, can, I mean, every once in a while I'll be so busy that I don't have time to, to do it right, but, um, but I just have to make it a priority. I just have to make that part of my routine, like brushing my teeth. And as long as I do it on a daily basis, I get a release. And when I don't, I can feel it. Yes? Could you talk about making amends and how that process was for you and how it was with what were the difficult ones? Sure. Uh, the process was how I was making amends and what were the difficult ones. Um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was scary making amends, uh, admitting I had done something wrong. Um, the, uh, it, it, was, it was surprising as to which ones were difficult and which ones were simple. Ones that I thought were not going to be difficult turned out to be. Ones that I thought would be really difficult uh, turned out not to be. Um, I remember uh, I, when I was uh, in graduate school, I had written a very nasty letter to my father because we were having a fight about something. We had a complicated relationship to begin with. And I went to make an amends to him. And I went through this whole thing about, I'm really sorry about this, and so on and so forth. And he says, well, you know, one of the joys of old age is I have no recollection of what you're talking about. <laughs> so the one I've been dreading the most, he didn't even remember. So <laughs> that went fine. And then meanwhile, some minor ones turned into a major blow-up and threatened to sue me. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. So uh, it, I was surprised by it. But all in all, it was very powerful. Uh, the ninth step promises in the big book really began to come true as I worked through them. And I find that I can diffuse by taking a daily 10 step and admitting my fault. Uh, uh, like recently, I was, uh, I was driving, uh, this was just a couple of weeks ago, and I was turning into a parking lot uh, through, it was a very thick traffic, there were two lanes stopped and I went across and the guy in the third lane came in front of me and I ended up hitting him. And uh, he jumps out, he's taking pictures, and uh, before he's blocking cars, before he'll move his car off the road, he's taking pictures, and he's very paranoid, and uh, we pulled in there, and he gets out all ready for battle, and I said, look, this is totally my fault, I'm really sorry, Here, here's my information, I'll take care of it. And he was so suspicious and so weird about it, because um, <laughs> he, he couldn't believe I was really good. He said, I'm going to video you saying that. I said, okay. Because <laughs> uh, it was true, it was my fault, and, and I would have never done that years ago. I would have, you know, why didn't you see me? Why aren't you looking? I mean, but it was. It was my fault. And so it's, it's a real powerful move for me to be able to stand up and take responsibility for things. That, that works really well for me. And that I would have never had without a nice step, without really getting down and understanding that I, you know, like everybody else, I make mistakes. And if I do, I should take the consequences of them. And so um, it's, it, was, it was a great experience in that sense. Not fun, but great. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much.